Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen A Beautiful Mind uh, with Russell Crowe. Uh, it took me a long time to see it because it's about math, and math is boring to me. Uh, but it really, if you haven't seen it, it kind of follows this brilliant mathematician who's obsessed with cryptography, uh, and the film shows his obsession. And it shows it in positive lights, but also shows how it messes up his life, how this obsession drives him, and it brings lots of problems. And actually, if you think about it, a lot of TV shows and movies kind of key on this idea of obsession. Sometimes it's in a funny light. I was a big How I Met Your Mother fan, and How I Met Your Mother, Ted is obsessed with finding the one. And because of that, he has this list of attributes and qualities, which is unbearable to anyone, and it drives him away from so many uh, good women. It's just kind of this running joke in the story. Uh, but then, there's also those obsessive tragedies that you might have seen. Typically, these are kind of, a lot of Oscar movies really are tied to obsessive tragedies where at the end the protagonist is so obsessed with finding or discovering this one thing that he kind of distances himself from everyone else, uh, turns away from people who supported him, becomes a recluse and spends his life living in a van down by the river or something uh, like that. And the reason why obsession is so popular and so attractive is because it's good and it's bad, right? It's good because it's noble. We should all have passions to do something, um, but it's also dangerous to an extent. But have you ever thought, for people who we become impassioned with things, we become obsessed with things, what is it that God is obsessed with? What is it that drives God and compels God? Because we have to be certain, if we're made in the image of God, that God himself has passions, God himself has desires. But then when we take that passion and that desire and we realize that God is above all things and he's over all things, that means that nothing can frustrate God's plans. Where our passions and our obsessions, I was on a kick this summer for wings for like four weeks and I finally broke down and I wanted to go get wings because that's the pride of my life. Um, and I went to a restaurant and the table next to me ordered wings uh, and they got their wings and I ordered wings and she took my order and I was salivating and I was waiting for it. And five minutes later she came back to be like, I'm sorry, we're out of wings. And that was just set me over the edge. I, I desired, I longed, I obsessed, and it was taken away from me. God will never know the wingless frustration that we know. God is over all things. He is above all things. And God has an obsession. In Isaiah chapter 9, God begins to tell us what his obsession is. What is it that God is obsessive about? And God has an obsession in which he would receive glory and honor and praise by bringing salvation to men through Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, we see this prophecy of Christ being born and him being raised up and being the, the one who the nations would come to. And at the end of this prophecy, it said, God himself says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, God has passion, God has zeal, and no one can compete with God. No one will frustrate God's plans. In fact, God will accomplish all of his passion. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is nothing that God could have wanted or could have desired to do that would not come to pass because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-able and tonight in Romans, um, Paul is really going to draw out the themes of God's passion. And he's going to do it in kind of an interesting way. Uh, the end of Romans 11, which is where we are tonight, we're going to look at the whole of Romans 11, is really the ending of kind of the first book of Romans. Romans one book, but Paul has kind of two different uh, things he's getting accomplished. 
The first is in Romans uh, 1 through 11, and then the second is in chapter 12 through the end of the book. And he's going to draw out this for us by discussing what's going to be kind of awkward for us to look at and kind of weird for us to look at. He's going to draw out the plan and purpose and obsession of God by discussing this divisive issue in the church in Rome. He's writing this letter to the people in Rome, and Paul's writing to this church that's filled with racism. That's the divisive issue right now. On one side of the aisle, you have Jews. On one side of the aisle, you have Gentile or non-Jew Christians. And these two groups cannot get along in the church. The Jews are upset because here for the history of God's Old Testament, the Jews have been the people whom God has loved. But now these Christians are saying that without the law, without the Torah, without the sacrifices, without the rituals, they're loved by God. And the Jews say that's impossible. But then the Gentile Christians look at the Jews and they say, you missed the boat, man. It's about Jesus. It's not about the law. And because of that, there's this arrogance. There's this hostility, which is palpable to the church in Rome. And Paul is writing to this. And he's going to help us understand God's plan by giving us an outline of God's interaction with Israel and Israel's interaction with those who are not Jews. And let me be real here. Romans 11 is really a weird chapter, but it pays off. God gave us this chapter for a reason. He gave us this book not so that we would only understand interactions between races. He gave us this book because he's zealous for his glory. And so the first part, what we're going to do, we're going to do two things. We're going to look at how God interacts with Israel. We're going to look at that really fast. And so if you can't keep up, then listen faster. Um, But then once we've established that, we're going to come back and look and see what that teaches us about God's plan. And we're actually going to see a glimpse into God's joy, a glimpse into what God is obsessed with. Um, So here's what we're going to see tonight in summary. The mind, the plan, and the passion of God is salvation and glory. That's what God is about. That's what God is going to accomplish. So let's pray, um, and then we'll look at Romans 11. So Lord, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that every, uh, every, as the Bible says, every jot and tittle that's in here is good for us. It's effective. It's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so Lord, as we deal with what is kind of a difficult task for 21st, or a different difficult text for 21st century believers, um, we pray that We submit to you knowing that this is good for us, knowing that this isn't in here by accident, knowing that through a better and more clear understanding of what this text says, we are capable to have the great worship that Paul has in this text. So to ask that you be kind to us today, um, we ask that we may get a clear picture of your zeal and in so doing be drawn to participate in it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, Brief Bible history here. We're talking Jews and Gentiles. What does this mean? So in the Old Testament, which is the first fatter part of your Bible, I don't mean fat in a negative sense, Old Testament, just in terms of the larger section, um, we see that God tracks this interaction, which basically stems from God coming up to this guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. And from your line, there will be a great nation and kings will come from it and it will be a blessing to the whole world. And the majority of the rest of the Old Testament traces that family line. 
Abraham, um, Father Abraham that we sing about was the father of the Jewish nation. And the Old Testament deals with this real, physical, present nation with kings and with boundaries and with warriors and with uh, real political needs. And so that's kind of what happens. And Israel, this country, this Jewish nation, has been promised to reign forever. And so at the end of the Old Testament, the Jews are marginalized. They don't have much power. They're kind of a political mess. And so there's this anticipation that someone would come to restore Israel. And then Jesus came in the New Testament. And Jesus was himself a Jew. And he came to reestablish what it means to be true Israel. And this is where the conflict started. Because what Jesus said is that the people of God is not an ethnic people. It's a spiritual people. The people of God, to belong to God, doesn't mean you belong to a, to a race or a skin color or a, a geographical location. It means you belong to Jesus through faith. And this caused a divisive rift in the church, which surrounded Jesus' ministry, which surrounded the early church, and which is still present today. Judaism, even today, is not equal to Christianity. And Christianity is not equal to Judaism. In fact, I went to seminary uh, with a guy who, uh, some, some Christian organizations just have silly names. This is one of the silly names. Uh, it was called Jews for Jesus. Uh, that was his organization's name. Um, and as silly as the name was, he, he was, he was a Jew. Um, he's born in the Middle East, and he was converted to Christ. But what he wanted to do with his life was to be a missionary to his people and to go and proclaim to them that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, and that by being a Jew, and that by following the law, that's not going to please God. That's not the promise that the Old Testament promises. And in essence, what we're looking at in the book of Romans right now is exactly uh, what Paul is doing. Paul is doing what my classmate is doing. He's coming to this Jewish audience in Rome where we have Jews and Gentiles, and he's starting to tell them what they must do to be saved. And we're going to look at Romans 11, and we're going to look at it specifically through the end, lens of how will Israel be saved, okay? This sounds foreign right now, but, but, but see me through here, because that is a completely, probably irrelevant question for the majority of us. How will Israel be saved? We don't know, but hopefully by the end we'll know that we care. How will the Jews believe? How will God's promises to Abraham be fulfilled in this age? But the bigger question is, has God abandoned his people? God made a promise. God made a covenant. Is that old news now? And now he's turned to something better. And let's start by reading Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Right? That's the one Greek phrase we, we learn here. Meganoito. Uh, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what, was, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who is a false god. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be called grace. So Paul sets this backdrop here. Um, Elijah was this Old Testament prophet tasked by God to call Israel back to repentance. Israel is worshiping false gods like Baal. And so Elijah did this and he's begging and he's pleading and he's performing miracles and the people of Israel don't respond. 
And so he cries out to God and says, God, I'm doing what you told me to do and no one is responding. But God says to him, there's a remnant. Of this whole nation, there's a small remnant that will be there. There's a small remnant that will still believe. There's a small remnant that will persevere. And Paul is, what he's saying here is Paul is pleading for this present remnant in Israel. And he says, it's true. There is still of the Jews a remnant left which believes. And the first person he points to is himself. Paul was, jo- was born as the poster child of what it meant to be Jewish. Raised in the synagogue, raised as a zeal uh, for the law, raised as an enemy of Christianity. But here Paul is writing as one who saw the glory of King Jesus when Jesus reached into his life mightily and saved him. So what Paul is saying here by pointing to this remnant, is he's saying that Jews can be saved. To this church, where there's a divisive issue of who's Christian and who's not Christian, He says Jews can be saved. But this is where Paul makes his first point tonight. How will the Jews be saved? The first point is salvation by faith is exclusively by grace. Look again at verses 5 through 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now this is really, really important what Paul just said. Because there are actually sects of Christianity that believe differently of what Paul just said. And it would have been really easy for Paul to stick to that. We're in a line where people are candidating for presidency. And we all see candidates pandering, right? Saying things that they don't necessarily believe just to get votes. Saying things that appeal to audiences. Saying things to appeal to demographics just to bring unity and kind of this momentum. And Paul could have pandered to this whole audience. It could have been like Gentiles. You will be saved by your your pursuit of Christ through faith. God will honor that. God will save you. Jews, you will be saved by adhering to the law, by adhering to your sacrifices, by doing what you've been doing. God will love you. God will still accept you. But that's not what Paul did. Paul is very, very clear here. To have salvation in Christ, the way in which the Jews will be saved, is the free gift of grace. And Paul has spent the whole book of Romans telling us what grace means. Grace means we have faith. You saw that all the way back in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, if Jews are to be saved, they're not going to be saved by magic. They're not going to be saved by their ethnicity. They're not going to be saved because of their holy land. They're not going to be saved because of the star of David being on their flag. The Jews will be saved through faith. God doesn't create different paths of salvation. It's not different sense for different gents. It's not all religions lead to God. People will be saved when they believe in Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, Paul was again very clear on this. Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the Jew and for your beautiful grandma who doesn't believe but was the sweetest person, without faith in Jesus, there's no salvation. No one will come to Jesus except through faith. That means if you're a person in here or if you know someone who thinks they have salvation but they don't have faith in Jesus, you and that person are deceived. To be saved, to have confidence before God is to say, do I believe that Jesus died for my sins. To the Jews and to the Gentiles, Paul is saying, 
No one will be saved apart from grace. And grace is granting you faith. And so now Paul is just briefly, in two short things, I'm going to summarize a lot of what happens in verses 7 through 24. Paul is going to help us understand what this faith is. Maybe faith is still different. Maybe the faith of the Jews is different than the faith of the Gentiles. But first we're going to see that saving faith is accessible to all people. Okay? Saving faith is accessible to all people. Romans 7 through 11. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them, that's Israel, a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their trap become a snare, or let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall. By no means. Rather, than their, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, as so as to make Israel jealous. So, what's going on here? Weird passage. Let's summarize what's happening here. First, we see Paul describing God giving a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews cannot get over the law. They can't not do it. We all want that. We all want checklists. How do we know something? Give me a checklist. How do I get something done? Give me a checklist. Show me I can earn it. Show me I can do it. Give me something tangible I can do. And the Jews have gotten stuck on this law and they're trying to keep it and they're trying to earn God's favor through behavior and through ritual worship. But Paul says that God gave them that law so that they would be frustrated. Why? So that salvation could come to us. That's what Paul just said. Why is it that we have this rift right now, presently, still, between Jews and Christians so the Gentiles might be saved? You see, the Jews felt entitled because they were God's chosen people, right? I'm a firstborn child, so I know what it's like to be the favorite child. Um, and uh, you just feel entitled to things. You do. And the Jews felt entitled. They're God's people. To them was given the law. To them was given the prophets. And they felt like they were superstars because they belonged to the lineage of Abraham. Right? I know all of my parents' hopes and dreams are on me, not my siblings. They could try to put it on my siblings, but they know it's ultimately going to come back to me because I'm the firstborn. Right? They got no hope outside of me. So they could pander and be like, oh, I'm really concerned about what Kaylee's doing with her life, dating Jordan. Uh. It's like, we know ultimately they're going to come back to me. They need me. And so the Jews are like, God needs us. These pagans don't know how to worship him. These pagans don't know how to please him. These pagans don't know anything. But Hebrews says, written to the Jews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So God, in a great scandal, turned towards the Gentiles. He turned towards people who had no background of faith, no prestige, no bloodline, no civility. They're dirty they're swindles. They're pagans. Indeed, this happened with Jesus. Jesus came and his first audience was to Jewish people. He taught in synagogues. He went to Jewish towns and they rejected him and they ran him out. But then Jesus went to the Gentiles and the Gentiles believed and they flocked to Jesus. You see, when the Jews rejected Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't convincing to them. It was that in God's plan, he would bring the Gentiles into the fold by showing the Jews 
that they can't rely on proximity to Jesus. They have to rely on faith to Jesus. Salvation doesn't belong to a privileged group or a special people. Salvation belongs to those who believe. Faith is accessibility to God for anyone who believes. Another aspect we learn here um, about faith uh, is when Paul starts talking to the Gentiles. He starts talking to the Gentiles in verse 13, and you see that if you have your Bible open. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And he uses this illustration um, of an olive branch um, that was popular. They have olive branches in the Middle East. doesn't really fit in Montana culture, but Paul's using it because he's writing to a culture. And he says that Israel is the true branches on this vine, but through their unbelief, they're broken off. And what God did then is he grabbed these wild vines, these Gentiles, and he grafted them into that branch. He grafted them into the vine. And Paul here is cautioning against arrogance when he says this, Romans 11, 20 through 23. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So this is the second thing Paul teaches us about saving faith is that saving faith is humbling, it's persevering, and it's essential. See, I, I just saw on Instagram the other day, I was on my wife's Instagram, and she follows a lot of uh, her friends from California. California's where pagans are from, and uh, I'm from California, so, and Johnny is, and Sam is, so we got a lot of Californians in here tonight. And who else? Oh, your pretty boy over here. Yeah, um, so, so, and this thing said, it's funny, actually, uh, moment of shame is my account, and it was a Montanan. So thank you, God, for that remembrance. <laughs> Sorry, California. Um, so there's this Montanan who wrote this thing that said, oftentimes the nicest people I find are covered in tattoos, and the most judgmental people I know go to church on Sundays. Um, and it's kind of true that so often those of us who think we're saved think we're better than everyone else. Well, if they only knew how nasty their sin was. Well, if they were only loved like me. Well, if they only worshiped like me, if they only looked like me, if they only had my morals. And Paul here is combating that head on. And this can happen to any of us at any time in our lives. But Paul is reminding us that because we're saved by faith, we have no grounds to boast. You're not saved because you did something good. You're not saved because you earned it. You're not saved because you merited God's grace. You're not saved because God called you to be awesome and you answered the bell. You're saved because you believed that someone else was awesome. You're saved because you believed that someone else did the work. And anyone, we looked at that lot, or two weeks ago, Romans 10, uh, 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. We have no pride or arrogance in our faith for God has been kind to us and we bring that message to others not in this academic arrogance but we bring it to them as pleading people saying that anyone who believes may have salvation in God Paul talks about why that's important then here he makes it clear that faith is very important because he says you'll know if you believe you know the kindness of God 
If anyone comes to the Lord in faith, we looked at that three weeks ago, you will not be put to shame. Uh, 1 John says, if anyone confesses their sins, God is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul says, if you continue in faith, you will know the kindness of a great, good God. How do you know God's going to be kind to you tomorrow? Because you're going to wake up and believe. How do you know God's going to be kind to you next week? Because your responsibility is to wake up and believe. But then he uses this other phrase. He says, those who do not believe, they know God's severity. See, God is kind and God is loving, but God is just. And if we do not believe in God, if we do not honor the king who created us, if we do not pay our dues in worshiping an object worthy of great worship, you're an enemy of God. And let me be as clear as Paul here. Why do we care about faith? Why do we care about the gospel? Because if you continue to have faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you will know the kindness of God and salvation. But if you do not believe, or if you disbelieve, you will know the severity of God's eternal damnation and God's wrath. That's what Dave stood up here and talked to us last week about. How much do you have to hate somebody to think of the gospel lightly? How much do you have to hate somebody to see people dying and not think that faith is a big issue? So just really quick recap here of what we saw. Paul says that if Israel is to be saved, it's not because they're Israel, Israelites. It's not because they're Jews. It's not because they have practices and feasts. They're going to be saved through faith. And that faith is essential that faith is necessary, and that faith is enduring. And this is important because Paul is about to show us here that there will be, in the future, a mass conversion inside of Israel. There once was a remnant, but there will soon be a mass. The remnant was faithful, but one day the majority will be faithful. So just look at these texts here. Romans eleven, twelve. Now if their trespass, that means Israel's unbelief, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15 says this, for if their rejection, that's Israel's rejection, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Verse 24 says this, for if you were cut off from what is by nature for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. He's gonna, we're not going to look at that passage right now. See, there will be someday, we don't know when, probably near the end of all things, there will be a great number of Jews which will come back into God's salvation. But it will not be through some sort of magic promise of belonging. It will be because Jesus has removed their sin and through faith given them eyes to see. And in case you're wondering... That's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. That's how people are saved. Now, this is where this 
passage is weird. Okay? I don't know what all of you are thinking right now, um, but I'm not thinking it's going to match with what Paul says um, at the end of this passage, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been counted his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that when people look at Romans 11, we skip to verses 33 through 36 because it is worship rich. Paul is doing a good job bringing all of us to worship here. But let me be real with you. Paul's writing this as a letter. And letters flow like this way. Well, for you guys, it would be this way. (laughs) And so Paul's not here thinking on what he wrote uh, 11 chapters ago and being like, that was really good. I'm going to start worshiping right now. What we just read, this inclusion of the Jews, the rejection and unbelief of the Jews, the belief of the Gentiles, and the coming belief of the Jews, it led Paul to great throes of worship. When I was studying for this week, I was dreading this passage because I wasn't feeling that. I don't know how many of you sat in here with me describing those things about faith and Jews and you were like, this is the greatest message I've ever heard. I just want to stand up and sing. Yeah, that's what Paul did. This is God's word to us. But what has Israel to do with the University of Montana? What is the inclusion of Israel, the bringing in of the Gentiles have to do with us. Let's, Because let's back up here in Romans. We have to start looking at this as a letter. For the last eight chapters, Paul has been unpacking this gospel of faith, prophesied and spoken to in the Old Testament, made true in Christ, believed in by faith through grace. And then last week, we see this great passage on a, on, on a, the last two weeks, this great passage on evangelisms. This, this great passage on evangelism. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe and it will be counted to you as righteousness. Last week we saw who is to go unless they are sent. Who is to hear unless they are preached to. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's this thrust for evangelism. Go and tell. Go and tell. Christianity is less a come and see religion. It's a go and tell religion. And Paul is weighting us up with the requirements of evangelism. And yet, if the Jews, can you imagine being in Rome at this time? If the Jews didn't believe, how would anyone believe? The Jews had the proximity, they knew the Old Testament better than any of these. They were like Bible scholars. They lived in proximity to God. They had God's temple. They had all the equipment. They had all the background to believe. And yet they didn't believe. Look at what Paul said of the Jews in Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worships, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
Man, if these people don't believe in the gospel, how am I going to get average Joe on the University of Montana raised in a culture that doesn't know anything about the Old Testament to believe? If I can't convince Michael Jordan that basketball is a great sport, I'm not going to convince a figure skater that basketball is a great sport. That's the problem, isn't it? You see, this is the hope of the passage. The hope of this passage is that it brings to the forefront the last point, which is the obsessive mind of God. You see, it's true that our individual efforts of evangelism will be hard. They'll be laborious. They'll be awkward. There'll be times where we want to run and hide. They'll be empty sometimes. They'll be disappointing. We'll feel like we're doing it in a clunky way. But I want you to hear this. If God's plan is redemption, this world will know salvation. If the great God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, the I am, the one who crafted salvation is zealous for it, this world will know salvation to the uttermost. What is Israel to do with the University of Montana? The inclusion of the Jews reminds us that God will keep his promises of redemption. The Jews saw it. They turned it away. They spurned it. They refused to reject it. But God does not move past people who seem to have rejected something because God is zealous for salvation through Jesus Christ and he will get that on a huge scale. You see, one of the things that, this is honestly the biggest thing that stood out to me in the book of Romans is the vastness of God's plan. We get pessimistic a lot about what's going on in our lives, but I just forget the language of Romans. We saw this months ago in Romans chapter five. Just pay attention to the language here. Five verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the gift of grace and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Verses 19 through 20 says this, 19 through 21, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We see this language of growth, but then look again at the text we just read today, the ones we've just looked at, Romans eleven twelve. Look at the words. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that's good. Riches for the world are good. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, riches for the Gentiles are good. How much more will their full inclusion mean? The fullness, this inclusion is coming. Again, look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? From death to life. 
a great transformation. Verses 25 through 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening of Israel, or a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. There's this fullness of the Gentiles coming, and what comes after it, in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Do you see the words here? Much more, greater, more, exceeding, more, fullness, more, all, much greater, full inclusion. You see, we can often view our lives only through our own lens. But the problem is, is that we're not God. And we didn't create this plan. But we see hardship, which is real. It's true. The Christian life will be hard. We see opposition, which is real. We see worldly trials, which are real. But God is Lord over it all. And God, as we looked at in Romans 9, is sovereign over everything. Which means God, going back to Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Which means everything that's going on is meant to bring those words of abundance. Is meant to bring those words of glory. Is meant to bring those words of expansion. And oftentimes we lose sight of that. And that's what inhibits our evangelism. And he'd never respond. Now, what good am I? I probably will mess it up. There are better people to, to speak about the gospel than me. There are more qualified people. Someone has a better relationship with them. Someone will do it next year. But look at what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty eight, Speaking again to the Jews, as regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So here's what Paul's saying here. At this moment, Paul knew that any Jew that didn't believe in the gospel was an enemy of the gospel. But he also knew that because salvation belongs to the Lord, there are many in that midst who in this moment hate despise and refuse to worship Jesus. But God in his power has already made a plan for their salvation. You right now know people who you would say that person will never believe, that person is so hostile towards salvation, and right now they are real enemies. But in God's kindness, he may have appointed a day in that person's life where they are beloved by God's hand of saving grace in their life. You see, I want you to be encouraged here. This is what we're going to look at. I want you to be encouraged by the increasing yield of God's plan. And before I get there, this isn't utopia. This world is not utopia. This will be hard. If conversion were to increase in this world, hardship would still increase. It's not that as this world becomes more Christian, everything's become peachy keen. The hope for America isn't to be a Christian country. That's not what's going to fix America. In fact, the Bible says the opposite sometimes. It tells you that as converts increase, persecution increases because that's the easiest way to hate Jesus is to hate his church. But in light of Paul's language of expansion, language of hope, in light of the task of evangelism, I want to just consider the encouragement of God's promise. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. 17. Here God gives a promise to Abraham. He says this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and of the sand that is on the seashore 
and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This isn't up there, but I'm going to keep reading. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, sand on the seashore. God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. There is not enough Jews in this world to be sand on the seashore. God's promise was always to expand to the Gentiles. You saw that where his plan was to include the nations. The nations will be blessed by you. But here's the thing. Let me put this into perspective. God's obviously uh, using hyperbole here, okay? No one has counted the sands on the seashore. God knows them, um, but he's, he's being poetic. But let me just put it into perspective. Estimates show that over the course of human history, there have been roughly 103 billion people who've lived on earth. That's how big the number is if you want to see it in zeros. Um, so that many zeros. 103 billion people have lived on the earth. Right now, uh, there's 7 to 8 billion people alive on the earth. That's a lot of people, okay? That's a good If we were to get $103 billion, we'd be set, needless to say. If we were to get $103 billion, maybe our university could balance a budget. Um, however, knowing this number and seeing God's promise, I went to, I went to see, well, how, what, what amount is how many grains of sand? And I found somebody who had counted some estimated, some mathematician from Boston University had uh, counted how many grains of sand are in a cubic foot. Grains of sand in a cubic foot. And so then I asked Google, I was Googling the weirdest things yesterday as I was writing the sermon. I Googled how many cubic feet of sand are there on the earth. And no one even tried to answer that because there are beaches and there's ocean floor. There's just sand all over the place. But I know my wife having been a volleyball player, that volleyball play people are really particular about sand volleyball courts. So I looked up how to create a sand volleyball court. And the United States Volleyball Association says that in a permanent sand volleyball court, they recommend 5,200 cubic feet of sand. So let's just take one volleyball court. There's a volleyball court over by Panzer. Imagine that. It's not regulation, but just imagine it was the right depth. Okay. How many grains of sand do you think are in that one volleyball court? Someone give me a number. So I'm not going to go on. Someone give me a number. 5 billion, 200 million. Great guess. But how many grains of sand are in one sand volleyball court? The answer Five trillion, two hundred billion. Look at the zeros. That's one volleyball court. We're not talking a beach here. We're talking a sandbox. And God made a promise that his people would be expansive and they would be huge now. There can't be more people in heaven than have ever been born, okay? Also, we know that not everyone who has lived will be in heaven. Paul just talked about that. Pharaoh rejected God. There are people in Israel rejecting God. We all know people who have died rejecting God. But what this illustration goes to show is we will be overwhelmed by the power of God's salvation in this life and especially in the next. God's zeal for salvation is innumerable. And he will do it. 
not only will we win, we win by a lot. Because the power of the gospel will undo sin and death in this world because the Lord has appointed it. How does Romans 11 fit here? How, what does it matter to you? Seeing that there's this inclusion of the Gentiles and this inclusion of the Jews, which is yet to come. I want to stand here and tell you the best days of evangelism are still ahead. God will continue to save people. I love the language here. Not until the fullness of Gentiles come in and then there'll be another mass salvation. The final act of God in this world is huge revival. Is salvation incalculable through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right now in our increasingly wicked world, we're already seeing this. Through what appears to be horrible, oppressive results, the gospel of Jesus is winning souls like never has before. In the early to mid-1900s in China, the small amount of Christians in China were under intense persecution by Mao Zedong. In part of establishing his rule and his reign, he was one um, who came alongside and really worked with the country to establish one language. There are, all, there are hundreds of Chinese dialects which were barriers to governing, barriers to him getting power and glory. Um, and so he came and he established this one normalized language with just a few understandable dialects or accents. But as he was persecuting Christians and establishing a language to glorify him, what he ended up doing was making a standard language among one of the most popular countries in the world, which allowed the gospel to go to cities and people groups, which were once inaccessible due to language barriers. And since 1970, the Christian population in China has increased 1,000%. It is currently the second fastest growing Christian population country in terms of converts. By the year 2020, that's four years from now, by the year 2020, the Christian population in Africa is expected to double the current Christian population in America today. There are more Christians in Southeast Asia than there are in the rest of the world. <laughs> Four of, the, four of the fastest growing countries in terms of converts today are Nepal, China, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. With the exclusion of Nepal, which is just so remote, there's not the strong government presence. All three of those, uh, according to Open Doors, which is a website that monitors global persecution, all three of those experience severe to moderate persecution. And yet, they're the fastest growing countries in terms of converts. Now, let me just put some numbers on that. If we took the population of all four of those countries as a whole, we added them up, in 1970, only 6.4% of those countries were Christian. By the year 2020, again, four years from now, the projection is that 31.9% of those countries will be Christian. Percentages don't mean much, but this is to encourage us right now. That percentage increase in terms of real people 
being reclaimed from the severity of God to the kindness of God through the salvation in Jesus Christ is 450 million people being saved in 50 years in four countries for the glory of Jesus Christ. We cannot fathom God's zeal for salvation. 450 in 50 years in four countries. That's more than the current population of the United States and Mexico combined, bought for eternity by the blood of Jesus Christ. There will be salvation here at the University of Montana and globally. It might not be tomorrow, it might not be in your lifetime, but the actions of the faithful church to stand in faith, for faith, through faith, relying on the fantastic obsession of God to reclaim a dying world. We know that whether we live to see it or not on this earth, God will win souls. Evangelism is not passive. Evangelism is not defeat. Evangelism is not limited because God's glory is all powerful. And one day, we will stand in heaven with myriads of myriads and we will find our place blissfully in the irrelevance of blending in to God's mass of salvation. There will be at some point in this world, in Romans 11, what it's saying, a wonderful revival. And it will not be because God wants to boost his numbers in poll season. It will not be because because people are generally good. It will not be because humanity reached some sort of special achievement and have achieved much. People will be saved now and people will be saved in the future because the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken away their sin and granted them faith and salvation to the uttermost. And we will know glory and we will worship with Paul in Romans 11. Jesus himself says this, in Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. As you view your evangelism, you need to be wary of the individual trials you will face, but you need to fall back and rejoice that to God belongs the victory. To God belongs the majority, and to Jesus belongs the glory. That's our hope. That's our motivation. That's our doxology. May this hope convict you, motivate you, and encourage you to join the cause of our obsessive and gracious Savior. Let's pray. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. At the end of the matter, at the end of the day, at the end of this age, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.